You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. I'm so thrilled and delighted to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Amy Wright Glenn, to the show this week. Amy is someone I admire so greatly and One of the many things that I love about Amy is her ability to speak to tender topics like grief and loss with such heart. And she also is able to integrate what we know about some of these tender human topics from research and science. And so integrates science and soul and heart and so she really embodies the spirit of our podcast. So Amy Wright Glenn earned her Master's of Arts in Religion and Education from Teachers College at Columbia University. She taught for 11 years in the Religion and Philosophy Department at the Lawrenceville School in New Jersey, where she earned the Dunbar-Obston Junior Chair for Teaching Excellence. Amy is also a Kripalu yoga teacher, a DONA-certified birth doula, a hospital chaplain, a birthing mama prenatal yoga and wellness teacher trainer, and a regular contributor to the Philly Voice, wherein she writes on a multitude of topics, including mindfulness, spirituality, parenting, ethics, birthing, and dying. Amy is also the founder of the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death, and the author of two remarkable books, One being Birth, Breath, and Death, Meditations on Motherhood, Chaplaincy, and Life as a Doula. And the second, Holding Space on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. So Amy, thank you again so much for joining us for this week's episode. Oh, Melissa, it is a joy. And I so appreciate you taking the time to read the bio. It's interesting to hear about oneself kind of in third person. So, and to hear your voice read it with such kindness and reflection. I I really appreciated that. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, I I wanted to begin with a brief acknowledgement of the, the culture that many of us live in and grew up in, which is a culture that many have referred to as a death-denying culture, one that doesn't often fully acknowledge and hold space for the depth of grief that many of us carry, that doesn't treat it with the tenderness that it deserves. And so while I think it's hugely important for us to shift our culture toward a more loving recognition of what grieving is like when we experience loss in the form of death, 
I also think that this kind of denial and dismissal can extend to other forms of loss that don't involve death. And so in many ways, I think of our culture as a a grief-denying one, so more than death-denying, grief-denying one, and one that can pathologize people who are grieving and or who are grieving in ways that don't feel like make sense to us or that we don't feel like we have time and space for. And there can be a lot of discomfort around grief. And so I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this needed cultural shift towards embracing and holding space for grief, particularly when it comes to these kinds of losses and how can we embrace rather than turn away from people who are grieving these kinds of losses. Thank you, Melissa, for expressing the complexity and the impact that we feel when it relates to a grief phobic or a grief denying culture. And, and given that we are in this dynamic, socially, culturally, emotionally, I think it's wise to recognize the part of why grief is suppressed or denied or we try to fix it quickly is because it's painful to soften into it. And so if I'm with you and we're having tea or coffee, we're going for a walk and you start speaking about grief, if, if I also carry a lot of undigested, unresolved, frozen, we could say grief, the energy of that will be activated in my body. And so I'm not able to fully listen and be present to you because inside my system is starting to go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn. It's starting to activate memories that I don't necessarily um, even understand Mm -hmm. because sometimes the grief we've experienced is encoded in our implicit memory system and not our explicit memory system. It could be a loss that predates you know, three or four years of age. Mm-hmm. And, and so the body is starting to get triggered with the story of grief because we haven't digested our own grief or reconciled our own grief or even held space for our own grief. And if that is an effect between two good friends, that's it also echoed and um, impact, it, it, that effect in, impacts and compounds when we consider what it's like to, to change a culture. Because we have to have a critical mass of people willing to look at their own lives and to kind of defuse those inner triggers so that we can hold space for others, so that we can shift our culture, so that grief is something that we acknowledge as part of the human story, a normal part of human life. Mm -hmm. Because we love, we grieve. And it's not only about physical death. As you mentioned, there are deaths in life. There are estrangements in life. There are Uh, experiences where we might choose to have no contact with people we even love because that contact is unhealthy, toxic, poisonous to our system. And there's grief in choosing that, even if there's liberation in choosing Mm. that. I think that is so many beautiful points within what you just shared, Amy. And especially this last one of there being both liberation and grief in choosing to separate from relationships that have harmed us, that have been toxic, wherein there may have been some form of very intense abuse or not. Of course, toxicity can exist in a multitude of different ways that it's not necessarily 
something that feels completely joyful, that there can be space for both. And I also love what you said about part of shifting this culture involves healing ourselves. And and that, that healing often needs to start within because it's difficult to fully hold space for another when their own grief is activating ours. Because as you said, we are so interconnected. We share human experience. There is so much of life that is similar, even though the intricacies and the nuances and the specifics of our experiences are different. There is overlap in what grief often feels like to people. Again, there's nuance there and there's difference there, but the kinds of life events, experiences, and stressors that bring up grief are often very similar. So one specific type of non-death related loss that has been on my mind lately because it's something that I hear a lot of people talking about and often self-invalidating, not seeing this experience as worthy of grief in the same way that other experiences of grief or loss may feel valid is related to parents or caregivers who are not dead, but who have not provided in the ways that we have needed and deserved. So of course there are parents and caregivers who have been abusive psychologically, physically, and or sexually. And there are also caregivers who have not observed limits, who have been self-critical, who have criticized us, who have modeled certain ineffective behaviors. Of course, there's an infinite number of ways in which our caregivers cannot give us what we need, mental health issues, for example, as well. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to these specific kinds of non-death related losses related to caregivers and the kinds of grief and wounds that these kinds of losses can create for us. Do my best, Melissa. It's <laughs> a big topic. It's huge. You know, I'll start with hope. For all listening, we know through through a lot of uh, research and peer reviewed that's been repeated, you know, over the last few decades, that it really just takes one care provider who's consistent, who's reliable, who's emotionally attuned to a child to make a huge positive difference in a child's life. And it doesn't even need to be someone related to the child. Mm -hmm. Even one healthy adult in a child's life can make, make a say, significant difference in that human being's trajectory. Mm -hmm. So please have hope that uh, their, their, the healthy nervous system matters. A nervous system that doesn't get triggered too quickly, that is able to hold space for a child's story and expression matters. Now, when the care providers are the primary care providers can do that, but when parents don't show up, when parents are incarcerated or they're high or they're um, mentally so wrapped up in their own story, they don't even see their child except through a very distorted prism, mm-hmm. right? When I'm thinking of people with maybe cluster B personality disorder where they are so 
entrenched in a, a viewpoint that is so self-referential that there's really no space for the child to even show who he or she is. Mm -hmm. the, child, the child's always a trophy to lift up or something to scapegoat. Uh, you know, that's ex extremely painful for a child. Mm -hmm. And as a child grows, both the implicit and explicit memory of poor caretaking or abusive caretaking or disconnected caretaking or um, ineffectively, like significantly ineffective. I mean, all of us are ineffective at points. I am not a perfect parent, but, but I strive to be present. And so I be present with compassion. You know, that's what mm -hmm. holding space is, showing up with compassionate presence. And there, unfortunately, that is a skill that is very hard to do if you're high on heroin, mm -hmm. if you have um, unmedicated bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. if you are um, a pedophile and you're interested in sexually abusing your own children or your nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. It is very hard to show up and hold compassionate presence when the nervous system of a care provider is so distorted. Mm -hmm. So that is a death. Mm -hmm. That is a death. You don't need to have a physical body die for a child to experience a significant loss because somewhere in the child's body, she or he knows something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Something is significantly wrong with mom or dad or my uncle or my grandma who's raising me. Something's off. Something is so off that I don't feel seen. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I can be me. I can't show who I really am. Mm -hmm. I have to put on a mask. I have to protect myself from this person who's supposed to be caring for me, or I have to care for this person who's mm -hmm. supposed to be caring for me. I have mm -hmm. to parent my parent. Yes. And there's a deep loss. There's a loss of the normal and healthy stages of childhood development. There's a loss of trust. There's a loss of the capacity to be vulnerable with a care provider and be held. Mm -hmm. That is a death. It's a death I've known. So mm -hmm. I'll just say for me, I know what that's like to have a parent, um, choose estrangement or be so mentally unable to be present that it leaves a wound in me. Mm -hmm. So it is important that we speak to this grief. Uh, I had a, a conversation recently with a close friend who is experiencing estrangement because of politics. Her parents are QAnon believers, full on, fully believe that Trump did not lose the election, fully, fully, fully are completely convinced of, um, profound corruption and that Biden is secretly arrested and has an ankle bracelet. I mean, some wild conspiracy theories in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And because she doesn't believe this, they've cut her out. And she's like, well, do I really want contact right now? I don't know. They, you know, in her point of view, her parents have kind of drunk a certain Kool-Aid, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but there's a deep pain. She said, I'm in grief. I miss my family reunions. I miss my mom. I miss regular phone calls, but I have a, such a hard time reconciling their belief system politically with my own. So it could be political, it could be a religious um, estrangement, it could be an estrangement between parents. How hard it is for a child to navigate two parents who won't talk, mm -hmm. who can't speak civilly, or one parent who's always putting the other parent down, who's always speaking poorly about the other parent, or they can just feel the energy, gosh, they don't like each other. That's also a death. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I hope, those listening can hear the passion in my voice and hear the, the plea I have for you to honor your loss. If this relates to you, if you're listening to this and tears are coming or you're nodding your head or you're thinking, oh my God, that is me, mm -hmm. or that's my cousin, or that's my neighbor, please know that we're here for you and we want to shift a culture where your stories can be 
held with compassion and presence and you don't have to shove it into a corner of your life and, and just not talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you lifting up all of those examples, Amy, because I, I do think there is a tendency for us to create this hierarchy of loss experiences and to say to ourselves, well, I didn't experience that or I didn't experience this, some, whatever the that or this is, something that feels like it wasn't as bad as our experience. And so to really start from this place of acknowledgement and honoring of recognizing what we have been through that has caused us grief and loss. And something else that came to mind for me while you were speaking was this idea of compassionate presence and how important that is for us as human beings to receive as children for developmental reasons, just as people, as adults, and how when we're not used to receiving compassionate presence, we often don't learn what that looks like in, and I mean this in a non-judgmental way. And so it can be hard to know how to find it and even how to receive it how to recognize when we are and are not receiving it in a relationship because sometimes something can look like compassionate presence from the outside, but there's something about it that's resonating or maybe there's something happening outside of the public eye that takes away from the fullness of that compassionate presence. And so sometimes we not only have to learn or relearn what compassionate presence is, but we also need to learn how to discern the difference between compassionate and non-compassionate presence and also learn how to receive it. I, I think often those of us who have been parentified and have missed out on some of these core connections as children can be more skilled at offering compassionate presence than receiving it. And it can be quite uncomfortable to receive. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That is so true. We are, our limbic brain is wired to mirror and to mm-hmm. resonate. Limbic resonance happens when a child's breastfeeding and there's eye contact and we resonate and infants are always looking to resonate. Mm-hmm. And if mom or dad isn't resonating, if cries are left for hours on um, attended to if if the care provider is always staring at the phone and not at the face of the child we know that affects the brain the development of the brain of the child and secure attachment is wired in those first three years so if we don't have wiring or network neural networking that is based on a symbiotic mirroring if the mirror we look into is so distorted that the person behind it doesn't even see him or herself mm-hmm. A child is going to have a hard time when, when a clean mirror comes. There's going to be a resonance like, oh, I, this is what I've missed. But there could also be a fear. Like, oh, now I'm going to be seen. And mm-hmm. I've, I've been told I've been I'm bad. I've been treated as if I have to perform to be worthy of love. What will it feel like to be seen and be loved as I am, flawed and all? We're all flawed. So I think listeners need to remember, I don't believe Melissa and I are talking about like, the kind of regular run-of-the-mill human flaws that we all screw up sometimes. We all, mm-hmm. you know, lie sometimes. We all trip mm-hmm. and fall sometimes, but we clean it up. That's the mm-hmm. point. Healthy people strive to be honest and mm-hmm. be of integrity and clean it up. Mm-hmm. But uh, if a child lives with a family member 
who continuously lies mm-hmm. and the child sees that it, it can normalize that behavior yes. and so this normalization of distortion is is it the death of who that person could have been mm-hmm. who their what their neural networking could have done with their life if they mm-hmm. had had a, a mirror that was clear mm-hmm. so i think there's also the grief when we talk about grief and loss and estrangement or mental health issues with parents substance abuse with parents parents who were abusive on on many fronts or just neglectful or so caught in their own world there's loss there there's grief there mm-hmm. but there's also i think the grief of who we would have been yes who who could i have been if mm-hmm. i had a mother or father or you know fill in the blank who actually showed up for me mm-hmm. you know my my um, nervous system is wired in a way that uh, with because of the absence of that right. so this is where the work comes in where um you know i am very interested in how people process trauma and bring integration into people who have cptsd complex trauma response or who have complex grief because that that rewiring of the nervous system is possible i think with skilled practitioners we can mm-hmm. come to be who we might have been mm-hmm. but, but it's a journey and mm-hmm. and i think there's grief in that journey mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you naming that, Amy, because I I hear this so often, this grief around who who could I have been if it weren't for this experience? And f- for you even naming on a nervous system level that it does affect our wiring. And so we might be prone to anxiety or depression through no fault of our own, even through what we are, were exposed to in utero. There's so much research now on what our caregivers were doing when we were in utero and how that can affect our being. And so I think there really is this dialectic of both grieving who we think we would have been and and holding space for that and allowing that pain to flow while also recognizing, as you said, that change is possible. And we also know from science that there is neuroplasticity, that we can change this wiring. It takes work. It takes time. It takes commitment. And people who know me well know that this is one of my favorite topics, but there is science that supports this idea that there is resilience and there is the capacity to change. But I do think that that change isn't quite possible without that acknowledgement first. I really do think it's important to really name and acknowledge in whatever way makes sense to you, the grief that you're holding. And, and to really also flesh that out. Like, who do you think you, you could have been? And what does that look like? Because I think sometimes when we dig deeper, we can get into these pockets of, of grief that are there that we can't uncover when we're thinking about the grief and the loss in a vaguer, more broad strokes kind of way. So, so I do think that that is a really important type of of grief and loss to acknowledge the the loss of who i i could have been because that's a big one mm-hmm. and i'll add to that that I, at least in my experience gratitude and grief are often interwoven so 
you know, when you started this, you read my bio. And then I closed my eyes as you were reading. And I was just thinking of my own life and the different stages that were briefly highlighted, you know, what it meant to write a book, all the hours that it took to write a book, or what it meant to teach and receive an award, and just feeling the remembrance of that moment of like, wow, I've been acknowledged as a teacher in this way, and I love teaching so much, it meant something to me that was important. And, and to have gratitude for the life I have lived, and gratitude for the, the shadows I've known, and gratitude for the parents I've had despite the grief or in, in um, congruence with the grief, in dialectic with the grief, that they're not counseling each other out, that a person can live a life with a, a great deal of grief and still cultivate gratitude for the pieces that feel heartfelt, that feel um, the insights gained from knowing the shadowed elements of the human mind are, are only mind when we know them. We don't get to sit in the light and just learn them. We, we actually go in. We go into the wilderness. We go into the shadows. And some of us were born into them. And it's hard to wire ourselves differently. But in that process, I don't think we want to erase who we are. That there's some wisdom that comes from, um, from there's a wisdom that comes, and I can't put it fully in words. So I'll, I'll just say that in my quiet meditations when I've sat with grief, also I have found gratitude. And they're not always in the same moment, and it's not that I'm grateful that I was experiencing harm, but I'm grateful that I can learn, that I can choose, that's it. I'm grateful that I can choose my approach to this memory. I'm grateful I can find companions to hold space for me while I recognize this memory. I'm grateful for skilled scientists who studied neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful that I'm alive and I can tell the story of what mm -hmm. I've learned. So I think the gratitude comes from making choices that are life affirming. Mm. When I have a memory in my body that was harmful to my body or harmful to my mind. Mm -hmm. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that clarifies what I mean. I, I think that's such a beautiful articulation because I think so often people hear this message about gratitude and how important it is for mental health and, and resilience. And for people who have been deeply traumatized and hurt, whether it's by caregivers or other people, I think that can lead to a lot of anger or a lot of guilt if people don't feel because I think the the misconception is that the gratitude needs to be expressed for the event itself. And what I hear you saying is that that's not necessarily what we are advocating for or talking about. We're talking about grief that can be found in other places. So I, I'm not grateful that I was harmed the times in my life that I was harmed. I'm not grateful that other people that I love were harmed in the ways that they were. I am grateful that I am here trying to be resilient and to recover from these experiences. I am grateful for the people who are walking this journey with me and, and helping me with that. I am grateful that I am trying to parent in a way that was different than I was parented. And I am grateful that I try to forgive myself for the times that I do mess up because I am an imperfect parent. And so I really, really 
appreciate what you are saying here because I think sometimes we can internalize this message about gratitude in a way that is invalidating and harmful and, and can lead us to, to bypass our grief and to feel as though it's not legitimate or that we're somehow failing or falling short if we don't feel grateful towards the people who have harmed us. And, and I think that's the, an unhelpful way to think about gratitude in this context, that it's, it's not about expressing gratitude towards people that have harmed us or towards the harmful experiences. It's finding gratitude where it does exist and holding compassion for ourselves if that feels hard to find. Because sometimes when we are in very dark places in our life, gratitude feels very elusive. It can feel very hard to find and and that's human too. And so there's nothing wrong with you if you are having trouble connecting with, with gratitude. I think cultivating gratitude is a practice and a process like working through grief is a practice and a process, like so many aspects of, of human experience. You know, I, I had an insight while you were speaking that the fact gratitude can be used to bypass grief reveals how deeply um, grief denying our culture is. Mm. That we would even use an, an approach like gratitude to bypass, that that's how much grief I think our culture carries and I, I would be interested to one, you know, explore cultures that have had a different dynamic, socially, familiar, familiarly, in education, in our healthcare, all the different dynamics that could exist around grief. It'd be fascinating to find a culture that, or create a culture where grief is less feared, mm. where there's less resistance, where we know our system will process grief, that we can grieve that the human body knows how to grieve, that we can trust our body's sorrow and know that mm. we'll out and will be integrated through over maybe decades, but that we can trust the body can carry this and can digest it with the compassionate presence of support overall. I don't know if, I, I'm not saying that every grief could be, but I think overall we could show up with, with a great deal more mindfulness and, um, and courage if our culture was less grief phobic. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that ability to trust ourselves and our ability to work through grief or be with grief is maybe the more accurate mm-hmm. way to say it, feels more possible when we can trust our culture to support us through it. And I do think that so often one fear that gets in the way of fully allowing grief to be and to let ourselves grieve is the fear of the grief and the fear of not coming out of the grief, so to speak, of almost like if I let this out, what does that mean? Will I just be in my bed for the next 10 years? Will I never stop crying? There's, there's this sort of fear that it will, it will never stop dominating. And I think that that is true of a lot of emotions, the fear of the emotion. I think fear of fear is another, another big one. And, and I do think that there is this dynamic between our ability to trust ourselves and our ability to 
trust our culture and our support systems to lift us up. Like it can have this positive feedback loop where if I can trust that other people can hold my grief and listen to it and allow me to be in whatever way, shape or form that looks when I am grieving, that then helps me trust myself and my ability to integrate grief into my life in a way that allows me to continue even with waves of grief that intermittently flow throughout my lifespan. Right. And I would, I would garner, I would wage a bet that for those of you listening and those of us who can relate to the concept of fear of fear or fear of grief or fear of any emotion that was considered sort of unexpressible in our family of origin, that it all connects again to the parent, the grief around parenting, the loss of calm and clear and, mindful parenting because a parent that can hold and limbically connect to a child who's grieving and be steady and present and say you feel like the world's falling apart you feel like everything exploding but I'm here to sit with you and hold you while that happens and remind you that I'm here you're being held through this hard moment in your body your physiology is expressing all this but I'm not afraid of that I do that for myself I'm holding you and if we don't have that then I think we're even more afraid of the feelings and so those original feelings that are you know, from our early childhood are just sort of frozen in the system. And then more comes, more comes. So when I'm 50 and I feel grief, it's, it's like a tunnel into all the way back to when I'm five, to when I felt grief and I was quieted and I was told, go to your room. What's wrong with you? Why are you angry? What's wrong? You, know, you don't feel that way. That didn't hurt. What do you, what's wrong with you? You know, something's wrong with me because I feel this. And so I will feel it because my parents are telling me something's wrong. I get punished for feeling this. You know, families where children are punished for feeling. Mm-hmm. Is a, that is a toxic and dysfunctional experience. Mm-hmm. To be punished for feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, we may have consequences for acting on feelings that harm others. I'm not talking about that. Your child's angry. They have the right to be angry. They, they could be angry at you. They have the right to be angry. Mm-hmm. I remember my mom coming to sit by me and saying, why are you angry? I gave birth to you. You don't, I don't want to, you know, and just talking me out mm-hmm. of my her mm-hmm. instead of sitting down and saying, I can see you're angry. You want to tell me more? Mm-hmm. And I could be like, no, I don't want to. I'm not ready. Okay. When you're ready, I'm here. Just mm-hmm. that presence to say, I'm here. Your anger doesn't scare me. Mm-hmm. Your fear doesn't scare me. Your judgment of me doesn't scare me because I'm grounded in myself. Mm-hmm. So when children are told your feelings are bad and you'll be punished for them, and often grief and its expression of anger in particular is punishable, then fear and anger become like stuck in us. They're like mm-hmm. not digested. So by the time we're 40 and 50 and have chronic health problems and we're you know, wondering about all the sadness in our lives, it's, it's like, oh, well, let's trace it all back to how we were parented around these emotions that are normal. Mm-hmm. We're told they're not okay. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So like this conversation weaves back to how we began. Absolutely. And so we're not just estranged from parents. We're estranged from ourselves. Yes. Yes. And that disconnection happens so early and gets cultivated so early for so many of us. And so many examples were coming to mind for me as you were talking. There's the example of of punishment and derision and also criticism and encouragement to suppress emotion, to not let it out. There's ignoring of it, just 
so, so many examples of ways in which we feel as though our emotions aren't valid and we're not entitled to experience them. And the right way to be that gets us praise and connection and attention from our loved ones is through just that disconnection from ourselves and shutting it off. And something that we don't even realize is happening at the time. But then, as you said, of course, can lead to all sorts of challenges later on in terms of connection to our sense of self, self-esteem, mental health and physical health problems, difficulties in relationships. I think the list goes on. Again, we can, there is hope. We can change these things, but there are very early roots that do affect our relationship to emotions and our ability to trust ourselves in terms of integrating emotions. Like if we're taught, if we're punished for what we feel, if we're taught that it's not okay to express our emotions, I think it can certainly lead to us feeling as though we're not capable of handling our emotions. Mm-hmm. That, that the main solution is to shut them off and to disconnect and to not feel. And we can they perpetuate a grief denying culture. Yeah. And I wonder too, thinking through this this piece about emotions and being in the culture that we're in and our own families of origin, how we choose to parent. I think both literally and figuratively, because there are people in this world who who have children, animal form, human form, and then there are people who don't necessarily have children, so to speak, but do care for others in other kinds of ways that I think of as, as in a similar realm of parenting in this sort of nurturing way. So I think many of us are in roles in our lives that – that involve um, guiding others and mentoring others and nurturing others. And I think reflecting on the ways in which we can not perpetuate these patterns from our earlier years and being intentional about that, because I think there are ways that we are very conscious of the patterns that we've internalized and can be conscious about not repeating them. And I I think there are ways that we're affected sometimes by these early models and early interactions with our families that, that we're less aware of. So um, yeah, I think really stepping into that responsibility of creating this different culture, I I do think circles back to something we mentioned earlier about acknowledgement of what we've been through and how it may affect our experiences, both in positive ways and neutral ways and negative ways. Um, I imagine that many of us have been held in ways that we've appreciated and we want to carry forward. And then certainly ways in which we have not been held in compassionate ways that we don't want to carry forward. Mm-hmm. I think that's a way to, to conclude this good conversation is just to circle back and remind people that changing culture begins within. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly encourage others for that change and create structures that make the needed or required or hopeful changes more, more um, um, 
we can facilitate the ease that we want. So we have a classroom dynamic and we set up certain guidelines in a classroom and talk about emotions and talk about how you can feel them in this room. And at the same time, you're responsible for how you choose to act when you feel them. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there's shifts we can make and each of us has an influence in many circles, not just our own circle, private self. We impact our family, we impact our friendship, mm -hmm. our communities of worship. Mm -hmm. If we have them, our schools, our workplace environments, um, and online, social media is a huge place where we also can make yes. it. So I, I just want to end by, by um, end my thoughts and, and certainly reflect with you that a great gratitude for your willingness, Melissa, in your work to do these podcasts, to acknowledge and name the grief that is too often unexpressed, to look at death in a multifaceted way, and to take the time to really look at how grief circles back into the very earliest years we've known as human beings. So thank you, Melissa. Oh, you're so welcome. That was such a beautiful way to summarize and end, Amy. So grateful to you and your partnership in trying to shift this culture and all the meaningful work that you do in this world to support these shifts that are so needed and so important. So a deep vow of gratitude to you for all that you do. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.